Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello everyone. Hello internet. <laughs> Lovely to chat to you. Um, I'm one of the four co-founders of a startup called I Can Make. Um, in our lovely team, there is uh, Dean, who does user experience, uh, there's Becky, who does marketing partnerships, and there's Mark, who does product management, and there's me, who does printer wrangling and running around and, and all the other bits and trying to build a website. Um, we have been on an interesting, fun journey, which I wanted to talk to you a bit about. Uh, apologies if this is a bit co incoherent. We've been doing a project for the Nominet Trust. We all finished at two in the morning and then got up at six to come into London to deliver it. So apologies um, if I sound a bit rambling. So 3D printing, everyone sees it as this really exciting, brand new, wonderful thing. Actually, it's been around for a very long while. Um, the reason why it's exciting at the moment, and it's probably appropriate to say that in a place where openness is prized, is patents. So patents have held 3D printing back for years. If you go and talk to anybody who works in a product team or who builds things, uh, they use 3D printing all the time for prototyping. It's, it's a thing that's been there forever. And in fact, actually, I think it goes further back. And it goes back to these little pink things called the clangers, which some of you are old enough to remember and some are too young. And if you look through the clangers episodes, you'll find there's one where they get this amazing machine and they can tell it things that they want it to make. And at the end, out comes the little plastic cup. So actually, this whole debate about patents is completely mute because the clangers clearly have the patents on 3D printing. There's clearly prior art there. And, um, and the industry has been held back for many, many years, which is a disappointment to all of us. The amazing thing is, though, uh, patents are now expiring at a very vast rate. There are three really important ones that have expired already this year. And that means that everything's taking off. So to give you an example, machines that sort of two, three years ago would have cost you about £100,000, £200,000, you can now buy ones for £20,000. And next year they'll be £5,000, and the year after they'll be smaller. And so the technology is mature, and it's the uses of it, which I think are kind of interesting. Um, don't worry, this isn't going to be an entire lecture of me showing you model trains, but this is actually where this all starts. So I'm... A model maker. I like making models. Um, but actually I also have small people uh, like Tom who's our head of product testing who's given me a rather nasty cold um, and he's clearly very interested in Chris Anderson's maker's book um, and really with Tom and Sam is where for me this story started. I want to make some fun model trains with that and the way that I used to make model trains doesn't really work anymore because it's really intricate and it's bits of brass and they take months to make and then a small child might break them. And they'd probably be more sad than I would. But actually the lovely thing about 3D printing is you can print bits of model trains and then if one of them gets broken inadvertently you just print another one. It's quite amazing. And this mad journey actually starts with something that one of my children gave me which is chicken pox. Which as a grown up actually is just as unpleasant as everyone tells you it is. And I got chickenpox about the same time as the Olympics. And, uh, and I think the Olympics was quite a seminal moment in lots of ways. Um, I watched the opening ceremony rather high on medication. It was quite a blast. Um, and actually sort of somewhere between the amazing bit of the Industrial Revolution with Underworld as the soundtrack. The soundtrack of my beginning in the Web Revolution back in the, in the 90s, the early 90s. 
between Branner playing Brunel and uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee at the end talking about this is for everyone, it struck me that we'd seen the most amazing revolutions in the UK. We'd seen the Industrial Revolution, the Healthcare Revolution, Cultural Revolutions with music, and then we've seen the Digital Revolution. And in my slightly adult state at the end, I thought, gosh, what's next? I wonder if it's stuff to do with 3D printing. I wonder if it's a digital manufacturing revolution, almost a, what some people are calling a third industrial revolution. And maybe actually all of this amazing manufacturing that we did once, and it now happens in China, maybe that could change where it's done. Maybe that could come back. Maybe we could do it locally. Maybe we could pull a different lever on balance of trade payments. Sounds like a very UKIP-type message, but it's really not. <gasps> Um, it's, it's actually, it, it's hard to talk about this stuff without it sounding nationalistic. Actually, it's, it's fundamentally about material scarcity and what people will do as a job, which as a parent are two things that confront you on a daily basis. So my little way of prodding at this was actually uh, to look at really, really obscure Welsh railways. Um, so I'm always surprised at this point that nobody shouted out what this is. Uh, this is a wagon from the Dunorwick Quarry in Wales. And... Up until we started playing with this, the best model kit that you can get for it is this. It's made of etched brass. Um, you have to try and work out how to turn that thing into that thing. And actually, all you think about is this. It's origami, but it's origami with jeopardy because there's solder and there's hot glue and things like that involved. It's not very kid-friendly. And so I thought it would be kind of interesting to see if you could use 3D printing to change this. Um, at the same time, so something really interesting from the world of railway people happened in that these very old historic steam trains came back from America. We'll talk a bit more about them in a minute. So let's start with the Industrial Revolution. In the middle of the 1860s, um, the, there was a small quarry in Wales. I say it's small, it's absolutely enormous if you go and stand in it. And these quarries basically put the roof on the Industrial Revolution. They, all the slate that was quarried out of the Welsh hills was, went to build the houses and the factories of the Industrial Revolution. And trains, and in particular these narrow-gauge trains, then went on to be on the front line of World War I. They would take munitions and troops and things like that. And it got to a stage actually where wherever you built a road, wherever you built bits of infrastructure, you'd first build a railway. There was even, amazingly, something that looked a bit like Argos for steam trains. You could, uh, you could basically say, I'd like to rent a steam train, a whole load of track and some trucks for a period of time, so I've got a construction project. So this is all infrastructure we've kind of forgotten that we had. We look at everything now and it seems like we, you know, we've invented just-in-time infrastructure. This is trains as a service. It's amazing stuff. And the efforts they made were huge. And if you go to places like, this is the, uh, this is the Dinorwick, in Wales, what you find is that they had all sorts of bits of infrastructure that were just in time. So they'd cast their own wagon wheels. They had their own sawmill. Fortunately, it was off when my wife was changing my son's boots at this point. But they would saw all of the timber to make all of the stuff there. You had a mini factory that serviced another mini factory. And when you start delving into this stuff, you realise um, how local manufacturing used to be. We've grown up in this strangely engineered thing called the 20th century where mass media, mass manufacturing have all collided and have given us ridiculous things like the six-bladed razor and things are made in China we have no idea how they're made whereas the people who worked in these quarries knew 
intrinsically how everything was made. And as a result, they had an engineering confidence that at the moment we can't hope to have. But hopefully, and this is what drives us to do what we do, our kids will have it. So, the way we prodded at this future was we went and measured one of these trucks. It's a very small step, prodding at the future, and we then sent the details off to a chap who uh, we still haven't met, but he's like the fifth beetle in I Can Make, a chap called VJ, really, really amazing CAD designer who lives up in Glasgow. Uh, everyone's convinced he's a robot because we've never met him, but he's very, very good at CAD. And he built a really beautiful CAD model just from the photographs and the dimensions that I sent him. And uh, we then checked it against all the published plans to see how it done, because I'm a scientist at heart, so you have to check these things. And we then worked out how we wanted to split it into a kit. And he sent it back, and we put it on a sprue. We sent it off to Shapeways, and a bag of plastic came back. And I made one of the models up. And so going from start to finish of like making the measurements, finding someone on Shapeways, commissioning a thing, took about sort of two to three weeks. Turns out it was a bit of a false dawn thing. We, we managed to pick something that was really, really easy to do first time. Um, it's not always that easy, and we've, we've learned a lot since then. The amazing thing, actually, as well, is you can make them in all different sizes. So there's, there's interesting possibilities around that. Coming back to engineering, though, um, the thing that really started us on the I Can Make journey is this very humble steam train, uh, steam engine. So this is Winifred. She was built in... 1885, um, so built in the Victorian era. Remember when she was built, it's very important. She worked for 80 years in the quarries. She was mended most of the time in very damp huts up in the hills by the people who drove her or the people who hacked slate out of the hills. So not necessarily what we'd consider skilled engineers. Just imagine a JCB that the people who drive it works for 80 years because they mend it. It's completely inconceivable nowadays. And, and actually, it comes back to this engineering confidence that I think we've lost and that we need to get back. The reason why we found her really interesting at first was, here's a picture on the left of her in 1965. She went off to America. She was bought by an antiquities dealer um, who then went on to sell her to a chap called Tony Hallman, who runs the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, or who did before he died. And he had thought that he would build a museum of wheels and Winifred would be one of the exhibits. It turns out he never made this museum, and Winifred sat in dry storage for about 40 years. And when she came back in 2012, she was almost identical. So she had the last embers of her last fire in her firebox, paintwork untouched, had been in complete dry storage. But one of the conditions for her being repatriated was that she was restored to working order. Um, for those of you who don't know what happened when these things get restored, lots of bits get replaced. So these are all the bits that were replaced on one particular engine. So it was very clear to me that as somebody passionate about the engineering of the past, we'd got a time capsule and we had to try and record it before that time capsule was disturbed. And in doing so, we could try and create another time capsule for the next generation. Um, the conversation where I talked to my wife about laser scanning a steam train was quite a fun one. I must say a big thank you to her. Um, for not laughing completely at me. And she did laugh quite a lot and asked what on earth I was doing. Um, but for a while, um, thanks to her um, agreeing to it, I had the best desk for a couple of days in the engine shed in Wales recording Winifred. And the way that we talk a 
about it is that we introduced her to some of the robots that arrived while she was asleep. So the first of these robots is a thing called the Gigapan head. It's uh, that robotic thing just below the camera on top of the tripod. It's a product of the Mars missions. The early Mars missions, they didn't have a camera good enough to take all the panoramas. So they invented a robotic head, so a smaller camera to take lots of pictures. So we used that to take an enormous number of pictures of Winifred so we could catalogue her condition because it was exactly as she finished work. And so this is one of the images. Uh, this is a composite. This is half a gigapixel of image um, with incredible detail to it. We've actually got enough data that we can recreate all of the wear marks on Winifred, should we want to, when she's restored. Um, we had a problem, which was we couldn't get that particular robot round the other side, um, so we had to go back a bit later, and uh, we got a break in the weather in Wales. Uh, that's what a break in the weather looks like in Wales, for those of you who haven't been. Um, and so we now have a really beautiful condition report on Winifred. Um, this gives you an idea. So this is pixel for pixel on the right. You can see individual scratches, and not quite down to fingerprints, but pretty close. Um, we have sort of amazing cataloguing of, should we say, non-standard repairs that were done throughout her career, but which actually are the hallmarks of, of this make-do-and-mend culture that Victorians had. Uh, we have amazing things like the pattern that you see down here. That's actually where the driver's foot rested as he was driving the engine every day, and he wore the paint off slowly. And so we're actually cataloguing bits of industrial history here. Uh, we have some very early graffiti. This is the name of one of the drivers. Actually, it's not Winifred's driver, it's the driver of another engine. And it shows that the boilers were swapped at some point during the life. So what we were doing was lots and lots of industrial archaeology, almost. But all the time we did it, we were getting more and more in awe of the people who kept these engines going under very difficult conditions. So the next robot we introduced her to was a laser scanner. Um, we, like everyone, had visions of Tron. Uh, it wasn't quite as exciting as that. This was the only picture I managed to get with the light showing. Uh, I took hundreds of pictures, trying to get the light to show, but you occasionally get teeny tiny flashes of blue light. And uh, a gentleman in the background is a called Ben from Digital Surveys, who did the surveying with us. And you've got these white <laughs> sizing spheres that he put all around there, and it's a bit like GPS. As long as you can see three sizing spheres, you get an idea of how big the object is and the relationship of the scanner to it. We took a whole series of scans around the engine. Um, this was the moment at which Winifred kind of became a digital object in lots of ways, which was really, really exciting. And this is the sort of the assembly of the scan data. Uh, so this is one millimeter resolution data of a steam train um, taken from about a meter away. So you move the scanner around and you take lots and lots of, uh, lots and lots of readings. It takes millions of point readings per second. And each of the little tiny dots, if you zoom into it, that's an individual distance reading. Um, so it's, it's quite an astonishing piece of kit. And uh, what this data allows us to do is that now that Winifred's being repaired, we can put everything back in exactly the way it was. Uh, so the guys who are doing the repairs to her in, in Bala in Wales can refer to this digital model so they can get the pipes in exactly the same place. So effectively she is working as if she'd finished her working life but restored to some completely modern standards and modern safety standards as well which are uh, considerably higher than they were in the quarries in the 60s. 
Um, we go to the digital surveys, then turn this into a really accurate CAD model and see where all the pipes go. You can see where there are interesting things like dents in the dome from when somebody dropped a hook on her during her working life and things like that. Um, and like all of these projects, um, we kind of wanted to see what the data looked like. And normally, if you've got a spreadsheet of data, you'd put a graph on it and you plot it out. And actually, that's kind of what we did. In, we sent off to Sculptio and they 3D printed us a small um, Winifred, which was quite amazing. There's very few times in my career as a technologist when I felt the need to almost sit down after sort of seeing something. I sort of thought this might be quite a nice moment, but it was actually quite incredible in lots of ways to sort of see an object that had been physical, was now digital and was now physical again. It's a thing that Aaron Strout-Cope has called the, the analogue digital flip-flop. It's kind of an interesting property. And then we took Winifred back to see, uh, well, Digifred, as we call the digital one, um, back to see Winifred and, uh, and sat them together. And, and sort of fame spread of what we were doing, which was kind of weird. So um, this is me and Digifred at Radio Oxford being on you and yours talking about that future um, thing, which we were doing. Uh, this is a gentleman from one of the railway magazines who came to see what we were doing and was generally a bit confused by it in lots of ways, but thought it was amazing, and then totally got it. Um, and he called me a techno wizard, which I now want a T-shirt. <laughs> um, and then I, I got a lifetime achievement in that I was actually mentioned in one of the railway magazines. And then the best bit was we went and we entered a pitching competition, just to like say, we could revolutionise the modern railway industry. And the best bit of it was we made really trendy people hold toy trains, which was just great fun. They looked so uncomfortable. Um, but uh, one of the things we, we did as well was we did something a bit more serious, which was this is uh, Julian Burley, whose efforts have brought Winifred back. He, you know, is technically Julian's owner, uh, technically Winifred's owner, but he sees her, himself as her keeper, effectively. You know, she's going to outlive all of us. And one of the things that were really interesting was could we create replacement parts? So you can imagine you've got a Victorian steam engine. You can't just go back to the manufacturers and say, do you have on your shelves one of these parts? Well, the answer is we can now create replacement parts for these things and keep them going even longer. And we can even create replacement parts that have the sort of marks and the patina of age on them as well. So they don't look like brand new parts. They look like the parts that match um, the current condition. And again, we sent off to Shapeways and a bit of the future came back in a cardboard box and this is a 3D printed part in stainless steel that will go straight onto the train as a replacement part and be almost functionally as good as the original part. So the more and more we delved into it, the more we, we got excited. Um, we had a play around to see what we could do with the technology so we can print incredibly fine grills and incredibly fine parts. We could actually make this handle work if we wanted to. There'd be no real point in doing it. Um, but it would be kind of fun. Um, we also looked at what else you could do with scanning. Um, there's a thing called photogrammetry where you can take a whole load of pictures and it creates a depth map and you can actually create 3D scans of objects through a very large number of pictures. You can scan objects and buildings and things like that. We spent a lot of time wondering what to do with all of this stuff. Um, it wasn't obvious in lots of ways what we could do. Um, about the same time uh, this was the front cover of Wired. This machine will change the world. And Bree from Makebot looking remarkably happy with himself. Um, 
with an object that ironically won't actually 3D print on the print bed, which is kind of fun. Um, and we bought one. Um, we know uh, Breathe through the guys at Makey Lab, and uh, we started playing. Um, so my wife called uh, our MakerBot Margaret. She's now become quite famous. She's the only non-human to have ever had a team member page at Bethnal Green Ventures, because uh, we take her with her wherever we go normally. And our initial efforts with Margaret were complete and utter disaster in terms of 3D printing. Um, we learned an awful lot about what 3D printers can and can't do just by throwing stuff onto the print bed and seeing how it breaks. Um, really, really interesting. The thing that's important for what we're doing now is that that's everyone's natural tendency to do. It's like you're used to sending a, a paper document to a printer and it just prints out and you've got a piece of paper and it's got the stuff you have on your screen. That all changes when you're in 3D because suddenly you have gravity and gravity affects molten plastic in really interesting ways. And so actually if we're to sort of help kids understand the engineering of the future, and I'll come back to that in a bit, we kind of have to help them understand physics first and all sorts of other things and, and you know, try and, and help grown-ups to understand them as well. We went to lots and lots of maker fairs with what we were doing. We were really lucky we were invited to go to make a fair in New York and give a talk about everything and we took uh, Digifred with us. We actually met a man who had lived within, I think it was about a mile of the storage unit where Winifred had been held for 40 years and he came and photographed that and it was a real chance meeting, it was quite an amazing thing. And whilst we were there we noticed something really, really interesting which was that kids would just come up and they'd pick up these odd random bits of Victorian era steam train and they'd try and put them together. They'd look at the picture and they'd try and put them together and they'd feel the 3D printed um, sort of striations and things like that. And they were just utterly fascinated. And you could have really good conversations with them about historical engineering and also about what a 3D printer was, what a laser scanner was, really complex stuff mediated through quite toy-like familiar objects. And it was that familiarity we thought was really interesting. We also saw MakerBot's window display, which um, if ever I've seen a, a, a broadside at the toy industry, then this window display is it. You know, we can print all your things now, is basically what that was saying. And then we went back to Wales and um, we sort of showed off the project at the Maker Fair in Wales, which was a real honour. And then we had a really good think about what to do with it. We had no idea. It was just at that point, it was a a rather expensive hobby, um, effectively. And what came out of a chance discussion at um, Maker Fair in New York was that Bethnal Green Ventures might be interested in funding us to do something around 3D printing and teaching kids. And it was about the time that the, the new computing curriculum was out. I don't know whether any of you know any primary school teachers, but they're all terrified of the computing curriculum. It has words in they don't understand. So most of them don't understand computer science. Not sure I do actually, but you know, they certainly don't. They're, they're really scared by the language and it puts them off. And so I was invited actually on the day that we started Bethany Green Ventures to go and give a talk to my son's teachers about what the computing curriculum actually meant. And we wired up an Arduino to a sort of fun little Maplin's kit of a house that had like a you know, a thing that spun around and a thing that lit up and an, uh, a, a solar cell on top so you could show inputs. And they suddenly got what the computing curriculum was and they felt more comfortable about teaching kids. 
And we started realising that actually physical computing is a really lovely way to teach kids. The readouts on it are, are just almost instantaneous and actually the sort of stuff that teachers can do is really, really simple. And the other thing that sort of occurred to us about this time was that we've been here before. And when I say we've been here before, I'm talking about the mid-80s and I'm talking about the ZX81. So we're at the same point roughly now as we were with the ZX81 and things like the MakerBot Replicator 2. They're analogous things. They're breakthrough moments where you've moved from the homebrew computer club into a mass market product. Or you've moved from something which is a 3D printer that you have to solder and assemble at home into something you can take out of the box and you can start printing straight away. And it's, a, it's quite a seminal moment. If you look at even Gartner, Gartner are the most um, risk-averse people ever. And they've said that actually in the next three years, 3D printing will break through in the main, into the mainstream and will change all sorts of things to do with manufacturing. And so what we did was we sort of started thinking at Bethnal Green Ventures about what it was that gave us that head start in computing. And we then walked into... Um, Smiths, and we're all parents, and we all know that actually trying to walk out of WH Smith without a magazine for your children is like trying to escape from Ikea without tea lights. It's one of these sort of impossible things. We started looking at an industry that everyone goes, oh, print's dead, digital's completely killed it, and the, the converse is true. And some of the best-selling titles at the moment are things like this, the Minecraft book, bought by parents for their kids, and it's bought by parents for their kids for a couple of reasons. One, they can see that actually Minecraft's something interesting, so they want their kids to get on really well with it. The other thing, and this is where it being a book is really interesting, when their kids go to bed, they can read it, and then find out what their kids are doing, and that's really, really interesting. Um, we also noticed that the kids' magazine industry is doing really, 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 really well. Um, and we started looking at a few different types of magazine sectors that we know are doing well. So one is part works, you know, sort of thing where you buy a magazine each month, you get a part of a ship, you can build it up. We looked at these things called uh, MAGA books or bookazines, which are these really, really big things. And then we looked at things like the How It Works Annual, which we were really delighted still existed. And we thought, well, how do we start thinking about creating future products that hark back to these things that we know are really great for kids? Uh, we also obviously looked at the Ladybird books and uh, these are still pretty much unbeaten um, and, and we started doing lots and lots of tinkering. We also went to two very important trade shows, so this, believe it or not, so one of them was, was BET, which is the British Education uh, Technology Show, and the other one was Toy Fair. This is actually the Lego stand at BET, so Lego is going into the classrooms, it's teaching really interesting stuff around story through stop motion animation. Um, we also saw people that we were slightly more worried about at, at BET. Lots of really big manufacturers who are presenting very, very closed solutions to teachers, which means that kids will get to play with very, very closed solutions and not really know what goes on inside these boxes. And that, to me, it comes back to what's the problem. So if you look at the Victorians, they could mend a steam engine because they knew what was inside it. It was made in the UK. You probably knew someone who fixed in them, fixed one. You knew someone who was in engineering anyway. My parents lived in Coventry when all of the big car factories were there. They could mend their own car because they knew people who'd built the cars. So actually, if they got stuck, they could just go and ask a friend. 
problem with lots of computing nowadays is that it's a, it's a closed unit. You can't see what's inside it. You can't mend it. You can't learn from it. Um, kids can take them apart and find out what's inside. might be unpopular with parents. But actually, it's really, really important to know that. And the majority of things that we saw at Toy Fair had no seams. There was no way to really see where the edges of technology were at all, which, which made us feel sad and made us feel that we had to do something that reacted to that. The other place that we went was uh, Toy Fair. Uh, this is, you can't go into Lego stand at Toy Fair if you're not a buyer. Um, so this was the only way I could see into Lego stand, which was to go up on one of the gantries and photograph down into it. And what I saw was something that I'd heard about quite a lot that had made me angry when I heard about it, and um, I wanted to see if it was true. And that was that a large collection of middle-aged white men decided toys for everyone. They decided which toys were for boys and which toys were for girls. They decided what would go in the pink aisle and what would go in the blue aisle. And they would even tell the manufacturers to make something for the pink aisle. It's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And the, the, the effect of this is absolutely pernicious. We've been for huge numbers of meetings with people in the toy industry and they hate it as much as we do and they hate it as much as everybody who has kids does. Um, but actually, we go and talk to potential investors and they say, oh, it's quite nice you're doing these engineering kits, but girls won't like them. And, um, and that's normally a good sign to end the conversation right there. And it's because of these middle-aged white men. Uh, it's effectively a, a, a club. Apologies to middle-aged white men. I, I feel I can say it because I am one. Um, and we thought, well, we need to change that. We kind of need to change bits of education Machines are coming that are really, really good, like this 3D Systems Cube, which looks a bit like a coffee maker and sits in your home and looks lovely. How do we do it? What do we do? Um, and we came back to these two quite famous graphs. So the top one is the Gartner hype cycle. You know all the stages. Peak of inflated expectation, trough of disillusionment, slope of enlightenment, things like that. Every technology goes through these things. Um, the more interesting one in lots of ways is, is actually the bottom one, which is from Geoffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. And it's interesting because there's a really good step change in here. So the chasm separates creators from consumers. It's really important. If you want to cross that chasm, you have to switch your product from being something that's about creation to being something about consumption. And there can be eventual creation there as well, but it's about doing that switch. So we looked at products that had crossed the chasm and worked out why. So for CD players, it was enough music that you wanted to listen to. So not necessarily Dire Straits, but that was actually one of the things that made it leap over. Um, for VHS, it was content. And actually, uh, the reason why VHS won over Betamax was because the people who had the VHS format would license it more readily to content providers than Sony would especially in, should we say, the adult, uh, the adult entertainment industry. Um, if you look at the iPod, the iPod was really, really successful at first, but actually was quite a niche product until you had the iTunes store. So about six months after the iTunes store was there, people could suddenly buy this stuff. They didn't have to rip their own discs. Things like that. Whoosh. iPod sales increase. <clears throat> and then you look at the Spectrum. Everybody talks about the Spectrum as this amazing computing device. The entire generation learned to code on it and the BBC Micro. Actually, Poppycock. They played Manic Miner. 
and then they learnt to code. They wouldn't have learnt to code straight away because they wouldn't have known what they could do with that machine. They wouldn't have known it's, how to even interact with it. I, th I actually think Manic Miner, apart from Tim Berners-Lee, is probably the most important thing that's ever happened to the British web industry. Because that's how we all learnt to code. We played Manic Miner and then we got on with coding. So what it occurred to us was that we kind of had to produce the games for 3D printing. So the, the things that you could buy that were really quick interventions, you'd get to play with the machine, you'd print some stuff out, you'd have some fun, then you'd go, well, you know what, I think I could make a blah. So we started looking at things that had inspired us, things that were amazing pieces of engineering in their own right, we could tell an engineering story about. <coughs> if our voice wasn't going completely. but that were also recognisable. And that was the really interesting thing from our time at Make Affairs, was the more recognisable the object, the quicker kids would latch on to what they were playing with. Um, we started doing some silly stuff where we made um, Lego models of things to do stop-motion animation. Um, and actually, we're in the middle of doing a series of really, really simple videos about 3D printing, because all of the videos about it are way too hard. And it always comes back to Lego, because actually Lego is the first thing that we've ever 3D printed with. You're actually, you're the printer. You're putting down bricks and you're making an object, layer by layer by layer. So it's a really good um, metaphor. We've spent lots of time talking to the lovely people of Makey Lab, who are changing the world with their toys in the future. We've also spent a lot of time talking to the wonderful people of Tokaboka, who make the best kids' apps for iPad and iPhone. Uh, their apps outsell... Um, Disney, they're doing amazingly, they've been spun out of a small publisher in Sweden. And the thing that they do so well that we hope to emulate is, is their focus on play. So they don't make games, they make toys. And you say, well, what's the difference? And actually the answer is that a game has a goal and a toy doesn't. And it's that goalless, enjoyable playfulness that we think is wonderful. So we, we sort of knew where we wanted to go. Um, then the fun thing happened was that Oxford got flooded. Um, which was a bit of annoying um, and that meant that I had our head of product testing with me in the office for a few days and he and I sat and played with the MakerBot um, and we made some fake Lego and then we discovered that the Lego patent had expired a few years ago and we realised that actually kids just saw these studs as being like a design pattern almost an invocation to put stuff together so we started making really simple kits of these engineering icons with the stud system and uh, we found that even a four-year-old could put them together which was great and we found that an American ambassador could put them together which was even better and we printed out a whole load of pink train wheels at a maker fair and the boys wanted to take them home as much as the girls did uh, we found that boys and girls wanted to make the spaceship or the hovercraft just as much as each other and so we started playing around with how we packaged this this was the first ever airfix model it was kind of a, a mistake, actually. They did it as a trade product for Massey Ferguson tractors, and it then turned into a physical product. We've been sort of seeing how we can bag together filament and content to do the same thing. And I'm going to end with a, one very recent project. We've been um, commissioned by the education team at Tower Bridge to do a STEM education workshop for them. And actually, it's been the most amazing experience. We've done playtesting with over 90 kids now. Um, they all sort of charge in and, uh, and make Tower Bridge. We've gone back to the original plans, uh, which has been wonderful. We've gone and filmed bits of the bridge lifting on the outside. 
and on the inside we've had access right down into the bottom of the chamber and been down there and filmed upwards and going back to the plans we've now made a CAD model of it we had to make a small one to work out how to make the big one which is kind of fun and we can put stepper motors into it and things like that uh, some of you may have seen us playing around with a very tall pole with the camera on top in here that was so we could film from one particular angle at Tower Bridge that otherwise would have meant me getting into a safety harness and being about two foot away from a moving steel object which I didn't really fancy uh, so we 3D printed some camera mounts uh, that's me in the bottom of the chamber setting off our GoPro and what we've now done is we've now turned it into a model that kids can put together we actually tested it in the open at the 3D print show we were making it on our stand we turned our stand into a workshop um, Tower Bridge is lifted by a cog most people don't know how it lifts and we can now actually teach kids how it lifts and how amazing Victorians were. Um, we've even taught the business minister how amazing Tower Bridge was. And here's the magic one. There it goes. Whoop. This is quite speeded up, funnily enough. But actually, in real life, it goes at the same speed as Tower Bridge. We worked very hard to get the, the motors going at the same speed. Do it again, because I love seeing this. Um, and we've sort of made it so that we've, we've done lots of testing in the wild so we make a whole load of different parts and we actually are doing ABC testing with kids with physical plastic which is what 3D printing allows us to do we can print out completely different design sets and we can see which ones work best with them um, the kids actually do the session inside one of the abutments in Tower Bridge in the Bridgemaster's house and uh, this is the education team seeing it go up and down for the first time getting excited um, We've done fun stuff where we've been playing around with filament, which has actually got metal powder in as well, so you make really hard-wearing parts. A few more bits. Oh, we've already done that one. At the end of the session, all the kids get to take home a cog, and uh, that's really important because they now own a piece of 3D printed stuff they can take home. And at the end of each session, which it has to be said, the girls are better at than the boys. They're better at wiring the circuits up, they're better at understanding it, they're better at putting it together, so excuse me, screw you toy industry, um, <laughs> the, the kids all come up to us and say, this is great, could you make a, could, you, could I print a football stud, could I print a whatever? And that, for us, is immense vindication, because that's what we hoped. Uh, we're now turning it into potentially a little retail thing that you can buy in the gift shop, which is actually already 3D printed, um, which you can control, and we're playing with things like how to do almost Lego-like simple instruction booklets. And then, Steve Jobs style, one more thing. We're doing the Empire State Building that lights up in different colours to teach kids about um, programming again. So the, the national curriculum has this daft thing about data structures. I've worked in the tech industry for 20 years. I've never sat in a meeting where I said, excuse me, can we discuss the data structure for this? But somehow it's on the curriculum. Um, one final thing is we'd love your help. Um, at the summit on the 4th of November we're going to open up to everyone our survey about gender and toys. And we would like all of you, young and old, boys and girls, parents and not parents, and if you've got kids, get them involved too, to tell us about the toys that you love, the toys you wanted, the toys you weren't allowed to buy because you had to have a blah. Because there's no data on this. The toy industry hates it, consumers hate it, and remember the suited middle-aged men in the middle that are actually holding engineering back. So if we can get your help, that would be great. Thank you.
You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.